Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode number 14 of Confessions of a Market Maker. I'm your co-host, Ray, a.k.a. All Day Ray, a.k.a. China Doll Collector. And and I'm here with my ever-evolving co-host, former market-making scumbag of 20 years, a man who's a woman's dream and a retail trader's worst nightmare. When it comes to market profile education, he's on point like the nose of a marlin, a.k.a. the gorilla of House Street. I'm talking about JJ. JJ, how's it going? Good, good, Ray. How are you doing? Man, you must have had some coffee when you were thinking those ones up. Jeez. Oh, yeah, man. Absolutely, man. Having coffee right now as well. But no, glad glad to be doing another podcast. Can't believe we're uh, 14 episodes in. It's been very enjoyable. Hopefully, uh Keep this going for a while. Um, and so last week we had on uh, Tom Canfield, successful retail trader of 20 years. You know, I really appreciated his transparency, uh, plethora of knowledge he shared. Uh, what was your takes uh, away from last week, JJ? Uh, he was like a breath of fresh air, you know. Uh, it, it, in this retail trading thing that I've sort of fallen into, I I noticed there's, there's a huge um, divide between people who uh, – between who are sort of trying to gloss it up and then the guys who just say, look, this is the way it is. And mm, yeah, true. Um, he just reminds me of the guys that I used to be on the desk with. And uh, it, it was just, you know, it was just like, you know, you, you wouldn't try and gloss things over. You'd be like, oh, I just got destroyed today, you know, and you'd have yeah. a drink and talk and you'd laugh about it. Right. And uh, because that's the only thing you could do. Right. And that would actually take some of that, that horrible dread uh, that we carry around most of the time. So just just having them on the show, it just uh, for me because I live in a place where you know the financial markets aren't you know prevalent and nobody talks about trading. It's really nice to talk to those old school guys. It's uh, you know, and he's he's never been an institutional trader, but he's got enough scars as a retail trader to to mm-hmm. qualify to sit on any desk. I'd have him on my desk any day, you know. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. No, definitely a breath, a breath of fresh air. Yep. Like definitely. you said. Um, yeah. And so also you had the chance this week to uh, be on a podcast yourself. You know, I was really hoping you represented us well, uh, which I think you did. And so, uh, yeah, you want to talk about that? I, I hope so. I was, uh, you know, I was very, very lucky uh, um, to be a guest on uh, the Alpha Mind uh, with uh, Mr. Goldstein and and his partner and we just actually just just talked like traders at the pub after the close of market and it that was another breath of fresh air and it was just really really nice i was actually i was really nervous going into that podcast because i mean they've got some serious guys and ladies uh who have been on there um Mm-hmm, and, yeah. you know, and like serious real money guys. And then they've got JJ, the paper hanger, <laughs> but <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, it was, uh, it was, it was really, really nice. And they're super, super nice gentlemen. And, uh, you know, uh, they really, they get it. And, uh, you know, I- I'm grateful because to have access to guys like that, um, as a retail trader is really non-existent. I mean, 
Yeah, These guys, sure. I mean, if you've seen shows like Billions, you know what people who can keep a trader's mind tuned in get paid. You know, uh, I bet you their consulting fees are outrageously high and deservedly so, because if you can keep somebody who's managing three, four hundred million dollars, um, if you can keep that person from going off the rails, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, you know, you're worth worth your weight in gold. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. No. Uh, and shout out to uh, Goldstein uh, and his partner over there at Alpha Mind. That was a. Uh, and it's part two hasn't even came out yet. That's coming out next week. So I'm all, <laughs> yeah, I'm people are gonna to get, that. Yeah. people are gonna get sick of hearing my voice. <laughs> no, I, I, I think the the uh, quite the opposite. I think we, uh, we enjoy these stories, and uh, you know that's what uh, today's podcast is even going to be about. Um, for for those who don't know, JJ is uh, planning on you know publishing a a book on his uh, exploits during his uh, market making days in Vancouver, and uh, you know I, I've gotten to read a few excerpts. Uh, here and there. And, um, you know, I, I didn't really have, you know, I, I didn't have too many like expectations, you know, I wasn't even sure really what to think. And um, it definitely was a pleasant surprise. Not that I doubted you at, at like by no means, but um, you're just your ability to storytell is very fascinating to me and you make it very, uh, yeah, ma- very fun. Uh, just the way you describe things. Um, and your your point of view, especially is is very unique. You know, you know, there's been like books, People have heard the crazy stories about Wall Street, but you also come from a unique perspective during the the penny stock days, the pump and dump culture, uh, which I don't think has been explored yet. And so, to me, it was very fascinating. Um, so, so JJ, so what what do you want to uh, share with us today? <laughs> well, I, you know, a lot of people are probably wondering how how I got into this this whole mess uh, of, of that world and. Um, I guess a little background. I mean, the the way I sort of write and the way I look at things, I've always found myself kind of, um, you know, looking as an outsider, kind of looking in because I grew up in Saskatchewan, which is a very uh, down to earth place. Um, you know, I have maybe 50 friends that I can actually, you know, I can trust those guys and girls with my life. And that sort of culture, uh, because people are, People who grew up here and their grandparents, um, they went through the Great Depression, and uh, they're hardworking people, like solid. So growing up in that culture, um, and also, you know, I'm an import. Uh, You know, my parents came from Sri Lanka in the early 70s, and I grew up here from the time I was like two or three years old. And so I I was the only brown kid in my entire neighborhood, school, high school, and never once encountered racism. So uh, it's a wonderful place, um, you know, and people are, you know, the way you're sort of judged in Saskatchewan is you're either a good guy or you're a goof. And that's the way, that's the way people sort mm-hmm. of, they don't really, you know, they don't really judge you by skin color. And I, the funny thing is I've worked pretty much every job there is under the sun uh, from, you know, power line construction crew in northern Saskatchewan uh, to working with heavy duty mechanics, being an assistant, things like that. And I've worked in some pretty isolated places and I've never, ever had a racist experience in Canada, right? Mm -hmm. Or even in the United States, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So I, you know, a a lot of people talk about that and um, I'm just here to say that, you know, I've been lucky and I've always met some really wonderful people. So 
going from that environment of Saskatchewan where people are very, very solid and uh, they work very hard. Some of them work physically insanely tough, like people who work on farms, things like that. Who are your friends? And then you're, you're all of a sudden you're in this, this world, this, uh, you know, financial markets world. And I always thought everybody who worked in, you know, in the stock exchange and, and I thought they were all, you know, nice young men and ladies who had gone to Harvard and, and were well-educated <laughs> and, you know, yeah. went to these really classy private schools and, you know, they're, you know, and boy, was it an eye-opening experience first reading Liar's Poker and then actually experiencing the culture of Vancouver and then the culture of, of New York and Miami and those sorts of places and Los Angeles and, and San Diego. <laughs> Can't forget San Diego was a huge penny stock town. Um, you know, uh, once you experience those cultures, sort of the perspective, like, you know, as this kid from Saskatchewan, you're kind of like, sometimes you step back and going, wow, this is really out of control. You know, um, that was, that was an interesting thing, you know? Sure. Sure. What what do, you know, have you talking to people back home in Saskatchewan about some of these stories? What have their reactions been like saying that, you know, it obviously being very different than your time in Vancouver. Oh my God. They're, they're, they're just like, oh my God, JJ, shut up. Um, <laughs> they might, mo- most of my friends are retired police officers. Um, you know, and I come from that, uh, weightlifting culture. Most of the boys, you know, I worked with as a bouncer, they became uh, police officers and the other ones work in some sort of enforcement for the government or this and that. So, those kind of guys just look at everybody on Wall Street as a crook. <laughs> yeah, I wonder why. You know, yeah. they're yeah. like, "You're lucky you're alive." You know, I don't know why you want to go to New York. I don't know what the problem with you is. Why can't you just be happy going fishing here? And I, you know, I, I don't mind that. But you know, the prospect of sitting on a twenty foot aluminum boat with three, you know, three guys who weigh, you know, three hundred pounds each. You know, I'd rather be in Miami, you know, uh, sure. or New York. I'm, I'm sorry, you know. I mean, I love you guys, but geez, you know, I, just, I, I, I'm not good at fishing and hunting. And hunting, they always do it when it's cold, right? And mm-hmm. uh, you know, and uh, it's just, it's not my thing, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, and I, I, I don't like killing, so it's, <laughs> you know, I don't do well at all these things. But yeah, they, my, my buddies, they just think I'm a nutcase for for living the life I did. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's like some of these stories are, it's hard to fathom for people, you know, and I mean, especially from people from the way you describe how Saskatchewan, very down to earth, mm-hmm. you know, it's hard for people to even fathom these things. So, you know, diving into maybe, uh, you know, some, some things you want to share about the book. Um, what, what do you, what do you think you can share with us out there without spoiling? Well, uh, I mean, the, the thing is, my my career in in the financial markets um, has sort of been sort of um, you know my my clients and somebody told me this uh, a couple of months ago and I never really considered it but most of my clients are something out of a John Wick movie or like like the characters mm-hmm. uh, in those kind of movies um, and it's just you know there is there was so much dirty dealing at that time. That people have no clue um, what goes through the financial financial plumbing uh, of North America and Europe and Asia. It's it's you know, but when you get 
staggering amounts of money, um, hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars flowing through these channels, you're going to get people who figure out, you know, let's, let's get into the flow of that. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and it attracts, it attracts characters like, honestly, the, 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 in the main paragraph or the first paragraph of my book, I, I, I say, I, I wouldn't have believed these stories if they actually hadn't happened to me. Um, and it's not like I went seeking this stuff out. Just, I would always just sort of stumble backwards into, you know, some sort of a weird situation where there were these characters. Um, and Vancouver at the time was a Pacific Rim city and considered offshore uh, to the SEC. Um, so it attracted, my God, it attracted Saudi arms dealers and it attracted uh, fugitive financiers from Malaysia and attractive, you know, they were just, you know, Whole cast of characters. Yeah. There, was, oh, yeah. there were a cast of characters, you know, where, um, you, you know, you, they would live in apartments that, you know, they had the whole floor of the building at the top floor and you needed an access code to get up to their apartment. And there were security guards and they would pat you down before you went to visit them. And, and, and just all this madness, you know, um, mm-hmm. and it's funny because most of Canadians have no clue that this was happening in their country and probably still is happening, you know? Yeah. yeah. I mean, the, I mean, I know this because you've told me, but beforehand, I guess there was a, a pretty heavy, um, what do you call it? Criminal aspect to Vancouver. Oh, you know, I, I hate to, to say anything negative about Vancouver, but it, you have to put it in the perspective that it is a Pacific Rim city. And you also have to put it in the perspective that some very, very sophisticated money came into that city and the city was not functioning. Uh, and our country, unfortunately, was not functioning at that level of sophistication financially to mm-hmm. deal with the influx of money that has come into Canada through that city. Um, and we're talking, oh my God, billions and billions of dollars, uh, first in the stock market, then in real estate. Um, it's just, uh, you know, it was when one thing I noticed about this industry are there are, there are people in this industry that are ridiculously scary intelligent. And when they, you take someone that's that intelligent and you put them around that much money, mm-hmm. um, you know, you expect bad things to happen. If they have a little bit of what we call the larceny in them, um, you know, <laughs> yeah. my God, you know, I have seen things and involving, you know, you, you see it because you see it in the market and, you know, it goes through your ticker and, and, you know, the, the company that uh, I use their quote software, they would have something called dollar volume and dollar volume was everything. Um, in, in those days, because we didn't care what the stock traded at the price or any of that. We cared about how liquid it was so we could dispose of large chunks of stock into a market. Mm-hmm. So we would look at the dollar volume and, oh, if it traded a million dollars worth of stock that day, um, did we sell at least 30% into that? You know, did we, are we liquid $300,000 in the account? If we're not, I'm fired. Mm-hmm. Right. So that that that's how we were judged. We were judged at how well we could sell stock into a market without destroying the price. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you know, 
just the going over the stories that you've sent me reading it. Another thing that's interesting to me about your perspective is, you know, you're dealing with a lot of these shady characters to call them. And, you know, you yourself never come across that way. You know, like you, you, you move in a different type of manner. You look at things from a more ethical standpoint, I I would say, at least in my opinion. Well, the thing about me was I was, I was, I came from the nightclub industry and then I worked for the federal government, believe it or not, um, because I speak French. Um, and, um, it gave me an opportunity to work downtown and get to know people downtown. I actually never, I did not deal with the criminal element so much as I did them a lot of favors because they knew me from the old days of being a bouncer. So they would ask for a favor, you know, can you find out some information or something like that? And I would do it for them. And that way it was a lot better than having them as clients or um, owing them a favor. Um, so that way I always oh, yeah. kind of kept myself out of trouble. <laughs> uh, you know, there was one client I found out that was pretty heavily connected in New York and I sort of, you know, I kind of sort of tried to sort of like, you know, waltz my way out of that situation. And, uh, luckily for me, he, he, he went away and, um, you know, and I did a couple of favors with his lawyer and, uh, you know, and everything's, everything was good and he never came back. Yeah. Uh, and we're still on good terms today. And he was a great guy and probably one of the best clients I had, but my God, if you, when the day I went to New York to meet him, it was like meeting Robert De Niro from Angel Heart. Um, <laughs> you know, it was, it was, you know, it, yeah. You know, you know, black Armani suit, goatee, uh, ponytail, but one of the most well-spoken, intelligent men you'd ever meet. Like on the phone, you would know that, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, but uh, it, you know, a pretty scary dude, right? But highly, highly intelligent, extremely well-spoken. Yeah, right. You, you would think that this man had gone to Yale or something like that if you spoke to him on the phone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you, you would never know. Yeah, right? fascinating. Um, you know, so it's, uh, I was always lucky that way that, you know, these guys knew me, they never did business with me because maybe I was a little too straight for them. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, uh, I think they would, you know, and, uh, you know, but every once in a while they'd be like, uh, JJ, I need a favor, you know, and, or something like that, you know, and I'd be like, okay, what do you want? <laughs> you know, yeah. like, what can I do to help? You know, right. and, uh, kind of, kind and they're like, like and, you know, and of course they always offer to pay you. Do you want some stock? Do you want some cash? You know, we can open an account for you in the Caymans. I'm like, no, 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 no. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Right? <laughs> Don't worry. Just, just take care of yourself and, you know, that's, you know, have a nice day. Right. 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 Um, you know, because, you know, being a bouncer in the nightclub, you, you saw what happened to people who got out of line or you, you sure. know, you, you know, you've watched enough movies to know not to get involved in that world. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, so. <laughs> Yeah, you know, a, another character that's come up um, in the experts I read that seems like a very interesting guy, the Penguin. Do you kind of want to uh, talk about him a little bit? The Penguin, yes. The Penguin uh, was a client of mine from my uh, marketing days, actually. Uh, I worked at a marketing company that did direct mail uh, for public companies in Vancouver. And what we did was we printed up little postage cards and sent them out 
to about you know 500,000 people in direct mail and they'd send cards back and those would be a hot lead for promoters or their phone rooms or public companies to to work that lead into a shareholder right so uh, i discovered um because vancouver you know is three hours behind new york uh, i discovered that if i got to the office at six o'clock in the morning the phone would ring off the hook with people looking to spend money and there was mm. nobody there to answer the phone. Okay. So I kind of figured that out within the first week and I went to being, you know, one of the top salesmen there. Um, and I didn't have to do much cold calling because, um, you know, and say, you know, do you want to increase your shareholder database and all that nonsense? So one day I was sitting at my desk, this guy calls in and um, he lived in Canada and um, he was from India and was a investor. And uh, he got to know me, found out that I was, you know, a brown guy too. I can say that. Um, and so for some reason, he felt comfortable with me. He also, if you've ever seen the movie Wall Street, I was Bud Fox and he was Gordon Gecko. Okay. So, uh, but on a much less glamorous level. Okay. This guy... The and how I got introduced to him was Briex was happening at the time, and uh, Briex Minerals was a Canadian mining stock that went to over two hundred dollars a share on the New York Stock Exchange because apparently they had had um, the the gold gold mine of the century in mm -hmm. uh, I think it was Busan, Malaysia, somewhere like that, Indonesia, mm -hmm. and. Um, you know, they said that they had uh, was it two hundred million troy ounces uh, of gold. That were, those were the resource estimates. It was just insane, right? Um, it turned out that it was a massive fraud that they had actually salted the mine. But in the meantime, uh, the penguin who lived in the same city as as Briax, um, in Calgary, Alberta, um, he had bought three hundred or. 3 million shares at a discount to the price that it was trading at at 30 cents. So he had 300, 3 million shares of this stuff and he sold it all the way uh, up to, I think, $286 a share. Jeez, jeez. Uh, now, hold on. Jay, <laughs> Jay I, I don't want to, I just want to stop you. Like, so did he know that these mines were salted? Was this? No, 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 no. He, okay. what he did was he would do, what he would do is he would say, look, he'd go, look, man, we need to find a good criminal. Okay. <laughs> and a good criminal, right, is a stock promoter who has such an expensive lifestyle that he must run the stock of the companies that he owns. Okay. Right, <laughs> to keep that lifestyle going. Sure, sure. He would sit me down and educate me on the agenda of why these things happen. He'd go, look, he'd say, this guy, he's got three ex-wives. He's got a drug habit. He has to have a brand new car every year, like a new Ferrari or a Mercedes. That costs money. That's a $200,000 a month, $300,000, you know? So he's got to create a market to sell paper in. So what he would do is he would go to this guy and go, look, you need 400 grand to do your fake mining campaign or even, but he would find real guys who actually would really go and get the resource out of the ground. Mm -hmm. And he would say, I'm going to give you 400,000 bucks and you're going to give me X number of shares at a 30% discount or a 40% discount to where they're trading now. 
the guy is going to take the money because it's just paper, right? Stock is just paper. You know, the, 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 the saying on house street was papers, 15 cents a pound, right? Mm-hmm. You know, like, so he would issue the penguin, a bunch of stock and uh, the penguin would just sit, sit on it, throw it in an account in Switzerland and just sit on it. And eventually this guy would start running out of money and start moving that stock. And he would do whatever it took to move that stock. Direct mail, phone rooms, bribing brokers to buy it. You buy one stock, one share. For every share you buy, you get two offshore, right? Uh, because retail stockbrokers, most people don't know this. Um, a, there were a lot of retail stockbrokers, even at higher levels, who we used to call them juice boys, right? You pay them juice and they would put their clients in your company, Mm. you know, and, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and they all had offshore accounts and they were everywhere. They were New York, Texas, you know, and they, some of them managed big money, you know? Um, And a lot of that, you know, investors don't know because now people trade online and they, and they manage their own investments a lot. So, um, you know, he would, he would find one of those guys and he would buy discounted shares in 10 or 15 companies and you know every once in a while one would pop and you know what he'd have stock at 15 cents maybe a million shares and it would go to three bucks you know so a million here a million there five million here three million there it adds up right Mm -hmm. so his his whole thing was i don't care what the deal is i want to look at the guy who's running the deal and if he's a good criminal and he knows how to operate he's going to move paper and when he moves that paper, I'm liquidating, mm. mm-hmm. right? And that's how you make big money. And that's actually how hedge funds make money in these, you know, under $20, under $50 small cap or even NASDAQ stocks. They do fun financings at a discount, right? Mm-hmm. They, do, uh, they do them at a discount to what the stock's trading at. So they're always got a profit. Right. And that's why I was told in this market, I was, you know, like, what are these deals should we buy? And he goes, you know, my first boss said, JJ, don't, you don't, we don't buy stock. We sell it. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> you know, uh, you get given stock for consulting purposes. You get given stock to help people in a deal. And that, that paper has zero cost. So you just sell it. Mm-hmm. Right. And there are people who have made insane amounts of money just by getting free stock from different public companies and just selling it into the market. Sure. Yeah, I could see that. Where where did the uh, the penguin nickname come from? Uh, because he was short and rather rotund, and he kind of waddled when he walked, and he kind of reminded me of the penguin from Batman. Yeah. Um, you know, he was just this guy was absolutely brilliant, and he had um, you know just really brilliant and insanely cheap. You know, um, you know, after Briex, he was conservatively worth three hundred million dollars, I would say, and it was stashed all over the world. You'd never find it. Mm. Um, and in fact, he got me my first Swiss bank as a client when I became a trader. Um, and they went with me not because I was a good trader, but because he probably had a couple hundred million dollars with them. Uh, and so they they would trade where he told them to execute, and uh, because he trusted me. And the one thing about how I got all these clients was that I didn't know how to trade when I showed up at my first day on the trade desk. I showed up with 200 clients, but I didn't know how to, I couldn't trade my way out of a wet paper bag. So, uh, but I always attached myself to revenue, right? Mm -hmm. So the brokerage firm saw that as huge commission because all these guys are doing, I mean, and 
is just selling stock through their firm, right? Deposit yeah. stock, sell stock, get a wire. That was it, yeah. right? Uh, and then they taught me, uh, you know, the people on the trade desk taught me how to trade, but my clients, a lot of these guys had owned brokerage firms, um, you know, or multiple brokerage firms. Um, so they taught me the intricacies of trading and the, and the, and the clearing system. Mm -hmm. So the penguin was one of the first guys, one of my first, you know, and he, he had deep, deep pockets and was the cheapest guy you'd ever meet. I mean, when we went traveling or when he came to visit in Vancouver, he would stay at the cheapest motel hotel downtown. <laughs> yeah. I remember, <laughs> you know, and, I remember reading and that. he would, you know, and he would want a discount. Yeah. <laughs> because he owned he owned a motel as a real estate investment uh somewhere near where he lived so he'd be like listen i want a discount you know i'm a hotel owner too so like on a 30 or 40 dollar room he'd want like a 20 percent discount or something like that you wow. know and he would argue for hours i'd be like oh my god but you know hey you know he, he was worth 300 million dollars he did whatever the heck he wanted you know <laughs> that's funny that's that's not stereotypical at all but yeah. <laughs> oh man, yeah. So yeah, good stuff. You know, I'm I'm going to bring up some of the other stuff that I've read. If you want to dive into it, go ahead. If not, no, 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 no go. Forward. You go ahead. I'll... Okay. Um, the one story I found hilarious. I mean, I, f I found them all hilarious, but the time where you know, I, I guess you were relatively new. You were driving around with a few guys. And they sent you into a building to, you, you, you know what I'm talking about, right? Yeah. Um, well, it, this was a, a deal that the Penguin, the Penguin had a, had a guy that was his guy before me. And this guy um, was actually a retail broker. He wasn't a trader. Um, and this guy had come from the same hometown as the Penguin. And the Penguin had started him out, uh, had found him and helped him build his book and, you know, they would finance companies together. And this guy was sort of the, um, I call him Mulrooney, um, after the old uh, Prime Minister of Canada. And uh, that was his nickname. Uh, so the Penguin and Mulrooney um, had one day discovered this company that uh, they were, the stock was quite liquid. It would trade three, $400,000 worth of paper every day at around a dollar. And... Uh, you know, they said, look, these guys are offering to sell us a million share blocks at a 50% chop, which is a 50% discount. So I said, that's kind of liquid. So the Penguin one day, uh, you know, told me to go pick him up. Uh, and uh, we picked up uh, the Penguin and, and Mulrooney at the same time. And we went to Gastown, which is kind of a dodgy area of Vancouver. Uh, it's just before the really bad uh, downtown east side starts. And in Gastown, there are these sort of old red brick buildings that are about 100 years old. So we're sitting in my car. Um, and it's actually a car that the Penguin had bought for me because he, he decided that I couldn't pick up Swiss bankers in a Japanese car. So he wired me 30 grand to buy a 7 Series BMW that was used. So I was like, okay, whatever. So anyway, I was more of a taxi driver at that time than a trader. So mm -hmm. I, um, I, I drive them to this building and of course he's like, okay, you two go inside and, and check out this thing. Right. And, um, then of course, you know, 
naturally Mulrooney gets uh, a phone call on one of the three cell phones he's carrying. And he's like, I got to take this as a big client, you know, from Cyprus or something like that. And, you know, he's like, you know, he's like, JJ, you go. So I'm like, oh, great. This is like, I, I can already feel that this is a setup of some sort. <laughs> so I go in and I, and I go into the, into the building and it's insanely high security. Um, and I was told it's an internet company. And, you know, so I, I walk in and the guy who greets me at the door is the CEO of the company. And the guy's from Regina. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, he was a really, really sharp the same, guy. From- the same town you're from, correct? Yeah. Right. And I was like, what the hell are you doing here? And he goes, what the hell are you doing here? <laughs> um, and I go, I'm, I'm, I'm here to look at, you know, the deal for these two idiots. And he's like, oh, okay. And he goes, I didn't know you were in this industry. Last time I saw you, you were in university and you were a bouncer at the club I used to go to. And and he was, you know, he was quite a bit older than I was, but maybe five, I'd say 10 years older. And he, he was a very sh- smart guy from a well-to-do family and he had a law degree and an MBA. So, you know, he told, you know, I, I knew that. So I kind of felt a little bit more comfortable and we walked in and, you know, we're walking into this building and it's like one of those buildings, it's an old uh, sort of old factory or something like that. So it's multiple floors. And they, they had the whole building. I was like, wow, you know, you're paying a lot of money for rent here. And he goes, well, let me introduce you to our CFO. And uh, the CFO comes out and, <laughs> you know, because from my nightclub background, you know, we, you know, I got to know all sorts of characters and, and the, their CFO was an ex-male stripper. <laughs> and I was like, what the hell are you doing here? And he goes, JJ, what the hell are you doing here? Right. <laughs> CFO. <laughs> so, the CFO is an ex-male stripper who used to sell cocaine. So I, I like, I'm like, okay, what is going on? Right. My alarm bells are going off, but you know, because I'm here to do due diligence, right? Like, yeah, I'm a real wall street analyst here. This is really legitimate. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, I'm walking around the place with these two knuckleheads and, you know, they open a door and, um, I look inside for about 20 seconds and, and get out of the room uh, because what was going on in there was rather uh, X-rated. <laughs> and uh, they like, were like, filming. Like triple X-rated. Yeah. And okay. so, I, so he's like, he goes, what do you think? <laughs> and I'm like, what do I think? What is this, Caligula? Like, what are you guys doing here? And they're laughing and laughing and laughing. <laughs> and they're like, well, it's, it's called internet porn. And I'm like, oh, dear God, right? And then I, and I knew that these two guys, the Penguin and Mulrooney, had purposely set me up to go in there because they were too scared to go into the building, yeah. right? <laughs> you know, because yeah. they're like, oh, he used to be a bouncer. Let him go in there, right? And, and so I go, I, I go and, and I'm like, so what are you guys doing? He goes, well, you know, we, we film this stuff and we, you know, there's a nightclub and uh, they, there's a strip club and they provide us with the talent and uh, you know, we film this stuff and we put it on the internet and it makes money. And I'm like, I'm like, all right. Okay. And uh, you know, so they're like, do you want to look at the books? I'm like, yeah, yeah. Really, really do I want to look at the books? Right. Yeah, like I'm like I'm uh, I'm I'm some sort of an accountant, right? <laughs> like I look, I, I I know that there's dirty money going through there, right? I know, yeah, because the the, the strip club was owned by certain men who rode certain type of motorcycle, mm-hmm. so I you know I knew I was like, hey, yeah, yeah. like how do I get out of here? The quicker I get out of here, right? 
So, you know, they're like, okay, well, you know, so I'm like, get, you know, I give my head a shake. I'm like, okay, let's get that onto business here. I go, what do you guys offer? Like, what's the chop? He goes 50%. And I go size. He goes a million share blocks. So I'm like, okay, thanks. I'll take it to these knuckleheads. So I, so that, you know, and before I go, they're like, Hey, do you want to hang out and smoke a joint? I'm like, no, no, thanks. I got to get back to work. <laughs> right. Yeah. So like, you know, this is the middle of the trading day and they're already mad at me that I'm off the desk, but the penguin was one of my biggest clients. So they really couldn't argue with me. I was the one bringing the revenue in. Mm-hmm. Right. 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 So, you know, so I'm already in trouble for being off the desk. I'm a rookie and I'm the one bringing in the business, but you know, you know, they're like, oh, okay, you can go, but you know, like I'm going to come back smelling of weed for God's sakes. Like, no, thanks. So I I run out of there and, and I get back to the car and these two are laughing so hard that they're crying, you know, and, um, they're just, they're just pissing themselves laughing, you know, at me. And I'm like, thanks guys. This, that was really good. You know, thanks. It's like that place could have been raided any minute by the RCMP. Right. And you send me in there. Thank you. Right. <laughs> and, and, you know, and the thing too, is the nightclub I worked at Regina, the RCMP went through there in training. So I would have known the guys that would have been busting me for being in there. Right. Wow. For even more embarrassment. Wow. So. <laughs> wow. And what, so, and, and so what, what year was this? Cause this had to have been, uh, 97, 98, something like that. So anyway, Mulrooney had, he had front run us, which means he had already bought a block. He bought a million shares uh, at a 50% discount, uh-huh, right? Uh-huh. And so the penguin's sitting there going, so what do you think? And he's testing me because, you know, to see if I've, if I've learned. I said, well, I said, you know, uh, at any time this thing could get shut down by the authorities. And I said, but it is liquid. So, you know, even if you bought it, at a 50% discount, you could probably get rid of it in one or two days, right? Mm-hmm. At a buck, yeah. right? They'll take it. You just have to sell it quietly. And I said, you know, probably, I bet you these guys use the same Swiss bank as you do. So you could probably just buy it internally in Switzerland and it wouldn't even cross the tape. Mm-hmm. And you wouldn't. And I said, they put probably, you know, and I said, uncle, who was the Swiss banker, we used to call him uncle. Uh, uncle wouldn't even charge commission. So the penguin was so happy. And I said, just govern yourself accordingly, which was, uh, which was the saying, right? I said, you know, these guys are bad guys, but you know, Hey, you're a greedy guy and you know, it's liquid. So mm-hmm. do whatever you want. Right. Yeah. And he was so happy with my analysis. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Pretty sharp. But <laughs> yeah, pretty sharp. So anyway, that stock ended up going to $21 a share and it traded like gangbusters. Yeah. Wow. Uh, wow. You know, so, yeah. And then, of course, the RCMP did raid the place and shut the thing down. So, yeah, eventually. Uh, we got- you know, but not before, you know, not before people made a couple of hundred million dollars. Oh, right? sure, sure, sure. Wow. You know, it was, that was, yeah, that was pretty crazy. Hilarious. Yeah, no, I love, I love that story. So, uh, moving on, and maybe we'll uh, tell one more, you know, we don't want to spoil the whole book, but, uh, you know, give a few teasers. Um, the next one, if you want to talk about, I like this one, but it, up to you. Um the story involving, you know, the, the beautiful China doll and the, you know, that whole China doll is, is such a disrespectful term, but, um, well, I did... <laughs> yeah, no, sorry. I, no, I, no, I, no. I, I had, I had, <laughs> no. <laughs> well, no, it was just a story about, uh, you know, we'd always go out to a bar pl- called the Georgia street bar and grill after the close, uh, especially on Thursday and Fridays. And, um, uh, I had a friend of mine who was, um, 
she was from the nightclub days and we were always buddies. We never dated or anything. Like we were pals. She was like a little sister. And she just happened to be, you know, uh, a Chinese girl who was six foot. She was like almost six one and she was just absolutely drop dead gorgeous. And there'd always be a lineup of guys to, to go say hi to her and, you know, and try and pick her up. And then she'd always like, you know, come and run and give me a hug. And it would always, you know, guys would get really pissed off <laughs> thinking that I was dating her, but we were just friends. So yeah, that was, uh, I don't know. You can ask me whatever you want about that story. I just wanted to preface that. So the female listeners know that, <laughs> yeah. that we're not sexist pigs because Ray's throwing around certain words. Um, well, you know, <laughs> I, I, I only know that term because of the, one of the guys you were hanging out with referred to her is that I, I don't yeah, endorse that. Thank and, you. And, Thanks for clearing that up though, Jay. <laughs> yeah, and, I, and, I, and I cuffed him on the head for calling her that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, so um, <laughs> it was a little funny, and I thought you would know without me having to explain the whole story. You knew what I was talking about. That's that's why. I just yeah, it. yeah, that was an interesting night. You can go on and ask me whatever, whatever well, you want about. Well, that. do you, you kind of want to summarize the night because it, it was very interesting how it started? How you know she pops up? How an ex girlfriend pops up? How you know that this night was just seemed like a lot of uh, women who you've known were coming out of the blue yeah it was just one of those nights where you know you 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 start the evening um because the close of the the vancouver stock exchange was one o'clock um and and new york markets you know would close at that time uh you know for um sort of the uh the close was very early so we would start drinking early in the afternoon um, and the pub, well, it wasn't a pub. It was a sort of a restaurant in a hotel that we used to go to was very, very popular at the time in the nineties and attracted a lot of, it was all the house street crowd. So it was traders and brokers and assistants and, um, you know, so there were quite a few, um, you know, ladies that I had known because I used to be a bouncer. Um, and they used to go to the nightclub because the nightclub I worked at, they were, they could dance without being bothered by guys because it was like a dark hole and they played alternative music and it was very, very dark and very, very smoky. And the music was so loud that actually, if you were standing on the bar, you know, behind the bar, the floor would shake because the music was so loud. Um, and we had to wear, we had to actually wear earplugs. It was so loud. So um, for some reason, you know, all the pretty girls would go there to dance because they wouldn't get bothered by guys trying to pick them up. Um, and of course, when you have pretty girls going to a nightclub, you have, you know, uh, you know, the, the guys follow them like a school of fish. So it's, uh, it's just funny that I, I, cause I had two lives in Vancouver. I had this life as a bouncer. Um, and then I had, um, you know, this life as a trader and on quite a few occasions, those two lives would get intertwined. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it was just, uh, it was just one of those nights where it started out and then just people from my, from my past kept popping up and, um, and none of them I had dated. They were just women that I had known and who were actually, some of them were friends and things like that. But the group of guys that I was hanging around with were getting more and more, um, 
upset is more <laughs> with me is more of these women would come out of the woodwork. And I, I guess you can ask whatever you yeah, want. Well, yeah, that. yeah. Okay, okay. So okay, right. I'll tell you what I found funny about the story. Uh, well, I, I think first starting off, I mean, the um, the Chinese girl was, I guess, at the restaurant, like the bar and restaurant you guys were at. And um, you went to go talk to her or whatever. And she was playing around with your group of guys because they saw that she was looking at them. And so she wound up giving you a kiss, correct? Yes. And yes. And your 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 buddies were like just going nuts, like going wild. Yeah, they were kind of like monkeys in a cage. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, to, they were just uh yeah, that was um she would do things like that to uh to get people going. Yeah. You know. So yeah, I I found that amusing and then uh, what what else next happened? I I think a, a girl was she might have been a secretary or no, maybe she wasn't a secretary, but but another girl came up and she was trying to tell you like, oh no, this girl likes you. You were like, oh no, I don't know. She's too, she's out of my league type of deal. Like it was like the, the story was just one after another. It was like, and then another, then an ex-girlfriend came up. I don't know. I mean, you could tell it better than me. I mean, but is this something that you, you're not trying to go down right now? No, no, well, no, I just, it's just, I don't want to sound, um, I don't, I, I, don't, I don't, no, no, no. I, I, need, I already know what you're going to say. No, no, no. You, the way you yeah. even told the story. Um, was very respectful. You understand what I'm well, saying? I mean, if you don't want to, yeah. no, no, you can actually, you, you can actually tell the story a little bit and I'll comment on it. Oh, okay. Well, you, uh, I'm, I'm sure I'm going to get parts wrong. So you're going to have to correct me. Okay. All right. So, uh, and you could tell it so much better than me, but all right. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll jump in and I'll, you know, how it's, it's easier that way because I, I just don't want to sound like I'm coming off like, you know, some sort of. A sure. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So, so you, you correct me, you fill in the missing parts. So, so you have this little, you know, moment with the, um, the Asian girl, you go back to your buddies, they're, they're busting your balls, like, oh, wow, like you're, you know, you're getting with her, whatever, whatever. And you're like, no, we're friends, you know, they're not believing you. Um, and then another girl happens to come up to, in the bar. You somehow start talking to her because like the, the Asian girl was trying to like persuade you, be like, no, this girl likes you. You start talking oh, to her, yeah. right? Yeah. You start talking with her. She's definitely seeming very interested in you. She was even asking about the Asian girl being your girlfriend. You're like, no, we're just messing around. We're just, she was just playing around. And then while you're talking to her, an ex-girlfriend comes up <laughs> to you, <laughs> a girl you've seen before who you described as like really messing up your head bad. Like she really had a, a good grip on you. And oh, like yeah. she was yeah. she was trouble and you, and you oh, couldn't yeah. have no part of it. Yeah, there was there was this this girl that I had, I had dated, and and you know the the first time she broke up with me was devastating, and and the second and third weren't much better, so she always kept popping up into my life, and uh, you know I I would always have um, you know trouble um, you know staying away from her, uh, even though I knew that she would always end up breaking my heart, um, you know. So it, it was funny because you know, she came up and started talking to me and then, um, you know, my, my Asian friend came up and, you know, pretended to be my girlfriend and sort of scared her away. And, uh, it was, it was just a strange, yeah. strange day and a strange yeah. day too. Yeah. Yeah. No. And meanwhile, keep in mind the audience that his buddies are watching all of this and like, they think JJ is just the biggest player in the world. Um, and, and I'm not. 
I know, I know. That, that's what's so funny. That, that's what's funny about the story. You know what I mean? I mean, at least in my eyes. And uh, but it doesn't stop there because then you guys, you guys decide you guys are going to go out later to a club. But um, you guys go out to go get some food. You know, try and sober up a little bit. Go back home, take a nap. Then you guys wind up going out to the club, correct? At yes, night, we did. and then you yeah. run into another girl who you know. Um, and so, do you kind of want to give us some context on her? Well, she was another friend of mine from the nightclub days, and um, she worked in the film industry because the film industry was quite popular in Vancouver at the time. Um, and she um, she looked like Vanessa Williams, and she was absolutely stunning, very beautiful, very smart, uh, intelligent, um, and she was from Washington, D.C., and living in uh, in Regina. I mean, not Regina, in Vancouver at the time. And we were just buddies. I mean, I, there was never... You know, um, see, the thing is, uh, growing up, I the two of my best friends in the entire world are women. So I've never, yeah, I've never had a problem being friends with women. Like I don't, you know, it's not a big deal, you know. Uh, and so, yeah, she came up to me in the nightclub, and she kind of did the same thing uh, that my uh, Asian friend did. And the guys downstairs were just, uh, you know, they were watching us, and you know, and, and you know, I think because women know that I'm rather shy and things like that. They'll do things like that to egg on the guys around me in the old days. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> you know, so it, it was, you know, it was, that was another interesting evening. Yeah. Yeah. No. And so this was all in one night with your buddies watching all four encounters with four different women. I, I just, it, it was just funny, you know, because I, I know you're not that like, like the way they were viewing you is not reality. No, no. I just I'm I'm always the guy that women come to when they have problems, right? I, I'm that guy, right? And, <laughs> yeah. uh, like so, I, I have a lot of female friends. That that's all it is, and some of them just happen to be you know insanely attractive. But it's the, like they're like, but they're buddies, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I I just you know me myself, I found that story amusing, and even the way and. and you not even being a writer and you preface that with sending it to me. You're like, right. There's going to be plenty of uh, grammatical errors, et cetera. But the one oh, thing definitely. I could say from, from reading it from you, I could see the, the story in my head. You, you're a very vivid storyteller. Um, and so, yeah, I really, I really enjoyed that. Um, yeah. I mean, anything, um, you know, I just want to ask you a few questions though, I, sure, I guess go in ahead. general about the book, where, where did you get the inspiration to even want to chronicle uh, your life in Vancouver. Well, what what happened was when I when I had my heart surgery afterwards, um, I took a job with a software company, a financial software company, uh, software that I'd used for you know ten fifteen years. So I got to know the CEO, and he said, "Oh, you know, you've had heart trouble. Why don't you come and teach people how to trade using my software?" And I said, "Great!" And I started talking to retail traders, and that's when I started talking to retail traders. And when I was trying to explain something, I'd kind of use a story uh, from mm. from the past right, of right. what these guys would do to manipulate something or to create a market for something uh, or to t- or, or a technique that they would use. And you know, some of the people were like, "You know, you should write a book." And I'm like, "Really? I, you know, this is, I thought everybody knew this, right?" Mm. Uh, and then it. You know, I came to find out um, that, you know, most of that stuff, I mean, if you look at Wolf of Wall Street, if you look at, you know, these sort of boiler roomy type movies, some of them are, some of them are exaggerated, some of them are not, I don't know, there's sort of, um, they're, they're okay movies, but they're, 
I don't know. I always found something sort of lacking. Um, and I think with my perspective, it was just because I had, you know, I had almost 200 or over 200 of these characters mm-hmm. that, you know, who were just, you know, there were, there were promoters who would get called up in front of the SEC and go to court. Uh, and they, you know, dress in a pink suit, pink shirt, pink tie, and pink shoes, you know, at, at, a, yeah. at a federal court hearing, you know, in front of the Securities and Exchange Commission. You know, just guys like that, you know, they, they'd put on, um, you know, what we'd call a show and tell to, to show people the company that they were promoting. And they'd bring a live alligator or a crocodile into the restaurant. Um, you know, so Vancouver was full of these guys. There was a clothing store that sold nothing but colorful suits for these guys because they would wear like, you know, neon green suits or they were just like characters, you know, Um, it's not like it is today where everything's done on the internet because they had to sort of stand out and they'd go and, you know, shake hands and kiss babies and get people to, they would sit down with people and convince them to buy stock in their company. Sure. sure. So they would always want to show an air of, um, you know, that they had money. Right. So there was like, you know, Ferrari leases and Rolls Royce leases. And, you know, these guys would roll around and everything was leased for a lot of them. Some of them owned them, but you know, everything was about the big show, you know, the big expensive watch and, you know, the, you know, $8,000 suit or whatever it was at the time. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it was, I, I just, and, and for me, I was just kind of looking at this from the outside, you know, because I never really got sucked into that i had you know i had a bit of a car habit which you know was kind of hard um but other than that i never got into like i never got into the drug thing and and alcohol you know i'm a lightweight because i used to be a bouncer to i I hate being drunk in public because i know that somebody's got to deal with you right yeah so i never wanted to be that guy right right right. so um you know i I never got into a lot of those bad habits my only bad habit was really cars Mm -hmm. uh but um, you know, you know, it was it was just different watching this happen and watching this world, yeah, uh, which doesn't exist now, it, you know. And and I thought, and nobody's really chronicled what happened in Vancouver in those days. No, right, right, exactly. No, I I think that's what's uh, that's what's fascinating about it. I think even just now, maybe talking on this podcast about it is that you you know how you prefaced all this, you know, growing up in Regina. Um, people being more humble, down to earth, does oh, you, yeah. and you not getting caught up in all of this gives you that unique, like you said, almost like an outside perspective. Oh, definitely. It's, uh, it's almost the way Michael Lewis saw himself when he was working at Solomon Brothers. It was kind of like an outsider looking in. Yeah, and uh, you know, but you know, I mean, I do have a lot of buddies in the industry, and I. I did, you know, I, you know, I, I sort of let myself, you know, in New York, you do crazy things and, you know, and yeah, like party with Tony Duff. Yeah, that was, that was, oh my God. Shout out to Tony. We love Tony. Yeah, we love Tony. Boy, and both of us actually really can't remember much of that evening. Oh, I bet. I bet. But you know the 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 boys from Night Securities, God bless their hearts. They, uh, they did show us a heck of a good time, you know? Yeah. Um, Yeah. um, Hey, let, let, let me let me ask you this, you know, and, and I meant to ask this earlier with the people that you dealt with. It seemed like, you know, and even, you know, we just mentioned Turney, even Turney himself seemed like more of a street smart guy. Right. Did do you think that was more vital? Like the, pe- the like the people that succeeded were more come from like 
I don't want to almost say common sense, but that street smart as opposed to some maybe one of the more you know book smart intellectual people from a you know exactly. Ivy League school. Definitely, uh, the the street smart guys made the big money because they were fast on their feet. They understood what it was to create a market. And a lot of people don't understand that that markets just don't pop up by themselves. They are created, right? And deals are created to take advantage of those markets. Um, you know, so you can find liquidity. Liquidity is the biggest thing that I was taught. That was the holy, that was the, you know, that's the holy grail is liquidity. Can I create a market that I could sell 200 million shares into without affecting the price and actually have them coming for more. That's the way I was taught how to think by the really smart guys. And the really smart guys were the ones who were street smart. And then they were self-taught and they went and learned the book stuff. Right. 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 There's, there's a couple of guys um, that were, and they were ruthlessly, ruthlessly intelligent and disciplined. Right. The guys who were disciplined, the the ones who took two, three years to actually build a company, fund it, take it from the penny stock exchange to NASDAQ small cap to NASDAQ, those guys are billionaires now. And they started with nothing. And I'm like, they are literally liquid, Mm -hmm. right? You know, they're like $600, $800 million liquid, right? And then they'll have it, you know, they'll have a couple of hundred million in real estate. But those guys were street smart and they started out with nothing. And um, then they went and they learned, um, they learned how to sit, you know, at a white shoe investment banking firm and sound intelligent and actually be more intelligent than the guys who had gone to Harvard. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, There was a client of mine who created the Japanese warrant market. And this is one of the most insanely smart gentlemen I had met in my life. And, you know, he was one of the richest men in England at one time. And he, you know, he was just the things and he, you know, I, I don't think he had a university education. You know, he came from a very humble background. Mm-hmm. Right. And, uh, you know, just so you, when you're around people like that and they teach you things about the market or the clearing system or, you know, the certain nuances of things, um, you know, for a retail trader, it's like sitting down with Jim Dalton. And, and him showing you how to look at a market. Well, these guys were the guys creating markets, right? So it was, it was fascinating uh, to, to sit down. I mean, we did have the yokels and the yahoos that would do the three-day pump and dumps, you know, and walk away with a couple of hundred million and the SEC would go and claw back half of it or 90% of it, right? But the guys who did it well, who did it right, who actually were – and they didn't think of themselves as paper hangers, right? They thought of themselves as venture capitalists, and that was the difference. And they mm-hmm. actually would go into a deal, and, and they would they would fund it for a million dollars or two million dollars, and they'd get that. They the company would have cash to operate, you know. Um, and then they would take that company and and go and sit them down at you know sort of more respectable sort of mid cap or small cap firms, right? And those people really, really, you know, they, they built things and they, what they also did was they created shareholder value, right? Even if the venture failed, they would always give the shareholder, uh, an out, right? Um, you know, and some of these companies were speculative, of course, 
But what they would do is they would manage their market to an extent that, you know, if you bought stock at three or four dollars, you would be able to get out at 10 bucks one day, right? And then they would take it down and take it back up. So they would give people three, four, five chances. And all you had to do was not be greedy. And if you bought their deals down low, you would be able to make money because they, they would move the stock, right? They're very, very gifted people. Mm-hmm. But they would also, they created value for the people who bought the stock. They, they created, you know, they created millionaires, right? If you look at a guy like, you know, Robert Friedland or, um, you know, he wasn't a client of mine, but, you know, guys like that, I mean, you know, there's a story I heard about, you know, he sold his house or somebody bought his, or he bought a house and he paid for it in stock. And the guy, you know, had the stock, it was like $3 or something like that. And it went to 30 bucks. Mm. You know, um, so they, you know, the really good ones create a lot of wealth along the way. Right. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and if you, if you take the long-term view in that business and they did it right and they're very far and few between, you can count, I can count those guys on one hand or maybe two, Yeah, you know, out of the 200, I can count the guys who actually, you know, who didn't leave a trail of destruction you know, um, and they were very, very rare. We're going to have one of them on the podcast one of these days. Yeah. Um, you know, and I call him the moose. Shout out to the moose. Uh-huh. But, uh, you know, and he taught me so much. He's one of, you know, and he started off in a mailroom um, of one of the brokerage firms. And now he owns the buildings of the brokerage firms um, that he used to work in. You got to yeah. love it. Yeah, you got to love it. Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah, you know, you know, these uh, these guys, man, you know just the adaptability, like, like you said, like uh, these street smart guys could sound smarter than a Harvard guy. It, mm-hmm. Just the, the, and, and that's to me, like, you know, I, I had a, I had a friend, right. A real savvy guy. And he was like, you know, I can hang out. I can talk with people all the way from the, the white house, all the way down to the trap house. Like meaning <laughs> he can, he can blend in anywhere. Oh. And it's just, uh, you know, that, I just think it's just a huge skill. And, um, you know, you know, JJ, now that you're older and you've had time to reflect on your days on Howe Street in Vancouver, do you have any regrets, anything you regret from that time? Uh, I regret, I actually regret very little. I, I regret looking after my, uh, not looking after my health. That That's probably the biggest regret. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I think I, my problem was I trusted a lot of guys um, a little too much. And I was a little naive to forget about human nature, um, you know. And but overall, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't change a thing. I mean, I had a, gr- I've had a great run. Mm-hmm. You know? Awesome, awesome. So, last question I have regarding the book, and then we'll jump into listener questions. Is your book going to? I don't know if you put any thought into this. Is it going to? touch into any bit of this phase of your life now into the retail trading aspect? Well, I, I hadn't really even thought about that. And then I saw that question and I thought maybe that's a good idea. If people are interested, I, you know, I, I, I never even thought that half of this stuff was interesting to people. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and until I started talking to people and, and the thing I think also having a, uh, after having the bypass surgery, I think my, my memory sort of went a little bit. I've heard that's that's common. And along the years, as I tell a story, as I talk to somebody, I'll remember something else. And I'm like, oh my God, I forgot about this, right? Uh, but the whole journey as a retail trader, I, I think it's I think it's good because uh 
you know, the, the, the prospect of eating humble pie, um, you know, as becoming a retail trader, thinking that, you know, you're really, you know, you're a great institutional trader and you can manipulate, you know, the system and all of that. And then you sit down trading retail and it's extremely lonely and you have to have discipline and you have to spend screen time and you have to, you know, do homework every night and none of that stuff, even though I had read about it, didn't become real until I started doing it. Mm-hmm. And uh, the fear of execution, the fear of taking a trade, the fear of not trusting yourself, um, you know, things like not feeling like you deserve to be successful again, right? All of that stuff, you know, retail trading is for me, it's like a daily exorcism of all my demons, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Because oh, yeah. as soon as you sit down and you and you fire up that, that trading software, uh, your demons are right there. They're sitting right, you know, on both shoulders and they're wondering, okay, you know, how are we going to get you today? And, and you have to fight those demons or at least make peace with them or do whatever you have to do, um, to, to deal with it. So you can, so you can execute without all this stuff hanging over your head. And I think, yeah, I think I'll probably start writing about that if, you know, if it's of any interest to people, I'll, you know, I'll ask, you know, yeah, uh, you know, because a lot of people, you know, a lot of retail traders who come into this, they're like, oh my God, this is hard. I'm never going to, you know, it is hard. It, it is hard for somebody, you know, who's hit a short position for a year in a bank in Switzerland. Right. So, mm-hmm. you know, for, for me to say that it's hard, it's okay to admit that it's hard and you know what? And it's okay. Uh, I see a lot of stuff on Twitter and it's okay to admit you don't know what the hell's going on sometimes. Right. Um, it is the most freeing thing in the world mentally to sit there and go, you know what? I don't know what the hell's going on in the market today. Yeah. It is, I, right? I don't see it. Yeah. I don't see it. I'm just going to sit back and watch because why would I put my money at risk if I'm not sure Absolutely. and not be, you know, or if you're not seeing it or if, if you're feeling tired or if something is weighing on your head. Yeah. Right. There, there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah, no, definitely. And, uh, you know, I, I think I mentioned it before, maybe even last podcast, but, uh, something that, uh, Goldstein really, you know, said that hit me was having self-compassion and even relating to, you know, my trading experience lately, just, you know, starting to trade live now, you know, for real money. Like I, you know, and I know, I know, you know, this cause me and you've been talking, but like, I, I was like, almost fighting that urge. Like, I'm like, Oh, am I being too scared? Because I haven't actually been, haven't been trading too much. I've been just sitting back like, Oh, I'm not liking this setup. Not liking this, not liking this. Um, but realizing, Hey, that's okay though. That's good. I'm just starting like have some, not, not beating myself up about it. Exactly. It's a business, right? Right. It's a business. And if you went to learn a new business, you, you know, you would spend some time understanding the mechanics of that business and how it operates and where the risk is and where the opportunity is. And, you know, so you have to look at it like that. A lot of people, you know, when they're in the trade, they think of it as a lottery ticket. It's not a lottery ticket. It's it's a trade based on, you know, methodology that you're trying to develop your edge, your risk, all of that stuff. It's, you know, don't swing for the fences when you're first starting out. Mm -hmm. So that was that, that all of that stuff I, I, I deal with on a daily basis. 
you know, and actually being in the room that you and I are in now and talking to people, I find does nothing but help me because I have to exercise my demons daily and now I get to do it publicly. So people hold me accountable. Right, right. right? Sure. Which, yeah. which is kind of nice. You know, it's kind of like the Ray Dalio approach to looking at things where, you know, there's an accountability when you're surrounded by people who, you know, who say, hey, you said this. Why are you doing this? Yeah, yeah. Sure. You're like, oh, okay. Right. You know, it's kind of like, okay, give your head a shake and, you know, oh, I got caught up in it. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. Or I thought I was too smart. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah, you know, for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, you know, some food for thought for you, you know, if that's something, you know, I, I was, that's just something I was curious about if this part of your, this chapter of your life was going to be included or is it just going to be strictly Vancouver? So obviously that's, you know, some food for thought. Um, And so, you know, yeah, with that being said, uh, let's jump into the listener questions and, uh, you know, as always. Uh, we promote or we advocate you guys getting in your questions, uh, any sort of questions, trading, non-trading, serious, non-serious, whatever. We appreciate the questions. And so jumping into it, our first question is from Chad uh, in our micro uh, e-mini education room. Um, so Chad asks, uh, could you talk on the pod today about how uh, you two met and decided to start the podcast? Uh, yeah, do you want to? Yeah, you want to? Well, I remember meeting you through Steve uh, because I, I started posting on Twitter because I was too cheap to buy an online trading journal. Um, and I thought it would be a good place to record some of this stuff. And next thing you know, people started following me. And I was like, oh, okay. Uh, and, you know, I, I mentioned something about market making and Steve reached out to me. And, you know, we started talking and... Um, then he introduced me to you and said, you know, I think you two would make a good combination for a podcast. And yeah. That's how sort of I remember it. Yeah. Yeah. No, shout out to Steve for, uh, you know, pulling this together. Yeah. Yeah. He, um, yeah, because I, I think Steve saw that, and this is my recollection that Steve saw that you were just a very entertaining gentleman. You had a lot of funny stories, just the way you talk, your, your vivid imagery. And he thought that, you know, us together, could, you know, create a good podcast. And even with the concept of you teaching me how to trade, because this is something I've been wanting to transition into, I just didn't really know how to, you know, I didn't, not the proper guidance. Um, and so, yeah, shout out to Steve for pulling this together. Uh, glad, glad we've done it. I've been having a lot of fun. All right. Definitely. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, shout out to Chad um, in our uh, micro e-mini education room. We appreciate the question, Chad. Good question. Next question comes from, uh, at poker and trading. Uh, so for Ray, uh, people mention the similarities between professional poker and trading, but what are the negatives, if any, from transitioning from poker to trading? Um, I mean, to be honest, I don't think I've seen any. I mean, now that I'm learning the right way and I'm, you know, grateful I have a good mentor in JJ uh, learning the right way. And I even think our personalities and styles align very closely to how I want to trade. I, I don't really see any negatives, honestly. I mean, I think like even what we were just talking about, like the demons that come out in trading, I think these are things I've had to deal with in poker, honestly, like losing a lot of money in a day, uh, going through substantial amount of losing streaks. I think these are things I've all had experience with that can bring those demons out. So I think if anything, I mean, you can correct me if I'm wrong, JJ. I think if anything, my strong suit so far has been not being overzealous, taking too many mm -hmm. trades. 
Definitely. Yeah. Definitely. I, you know, I, and I, I'm, I'm that way too. Uh, I, for the longest time too, I have trouble executing, um, because you have to really get comfortable with the process. And I, yeah. I would rather somebody under execute than over execute at the beginning. Right. 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 Uh, because it saves your capital, right? I mean, unless you've got a money tree in your backyard where you can keep refilling your account every time you blow up 30 grand of it. Um, you know, I am a strong advocate of capital preservation. Yeah. You know? Yeah. 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 And absolutely. And, and yeah, I mean, and, that, and that's something I've even told you, I, I've, I think I've expressed on the podcast, even my whole poker style, maybe not necessarily my playing style, but my approach as far as bankroll management, game selection, has always been conservative because, you know, as long as you got a bankroll, you're in the game. If you don't game over, you know what I mean? So, and like they say, you know, uh, you know, money preservation is everything. So I, I mean, so to answer the question though, no, I haven't seen any negatives and I see where people say there's good synergy between the two. So, um, you know, shout out to poker and trading, uh, for that question. Uh, next question comes from at G trader zero two four. Is market profile and TPO charts good for trading the SPY or stocks? I have not had experience myself using market profile for um, listed securities and ETFs. I have a very good friend, Paul Asmar, who trades the SPY using profile, using the sort of concepts that uh, Mr. Dalton has taught us, and he does very well with it. Mm -hmm. um, I've also spoken to people who've used profile for equities, uh, especially the liquid ones. Um, and, and they've told me it's useful too. It's something I'd like to explore. I mean, I've thrown profile charts onto different markets now, uh, because a friend of mine, you know, she, you know, she trades pretty much everything under the sun. Um, and I've been really surprised how, uh, how much more clear a market becomes when you can see the structure of it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So yeah, so the answer is yes, G Trader, you can. Um, and so shout out to you, G Trader 024 for the question. All right, next question, JJ. Uh, this comes from Lee D. And this this was submitted um on our YouTube page. Um so and and it's uh, a, a few questions. Okay, so get into it. So it's from Lee D. Um question. Um, is it fair to assume that there are many market makers per equity and index? Uh, it, I, I would, I would be safe to assume. Yes, there are now there are market makers. It's not like the old days where there are 400 guys in one room. Um, a lot of algorithms run market making. I'm, you know, and there are a lot of alternative exchanges, um, you know, that you can, you can trade through, uh, ECNs, um, you know, electronic communication networks. Um, yeah, there, you know, there's a, there's a plethora of ways or a bunch of ways that you can go and, and trade differently in all sorts of order routing um, that exists that since I've been out of that side of the game, uh, I haven't been familiar with that for at least four years now. Mm -hmm. Okay. So assuming the above is true, I imagine they compete with each other to create a market to fill their individual client's request. Yes, it's true. Yeah. That it's a competition based industry. Mm -hmm. Okay. So right. assuming yes, again, is it also correct to assume that an options market maker competes with their equity market maker? Uh, I cannot speak on that because I know almost next to nothing about options market making. Mm -hmm. 
and options as a whole, uh, because I've never traded them uh, retail-y. Uh, in a retail sense, I've executed options orders for clients uh, at the firm when I was on the trade desk, but that is my only um, experience with them. I have never traded options in a retail manner, nor have I ever actually sat down. There were a couple of guys who were ex-options market makers off the floor, but I never really really got into that side of the business so i I have very very i have my knowledge is actually slim to none Mm -hmm. to be quite truthful yeah okay okay so and and he um he just wrote a little bit and uh and i'll read i'll read this um see if you have any thoughts he's because he says he says that he's imagining cases where market maker joe needs to short at level x above vwap where market maker tom needs to buy at level z below vwap and they both need to get their orders in by today, it makes me think that some market makers do well for their clients where others do not. Um, are there strategies market makers use to dominate price action over their market makers competition to better fill their clients needs and even um, into, and to even out their own positions? Uh, I would say yes. And you've got to remember that the market makers, um, that industry has changed so much in my day. Um, there were certain market makers that got most of the order flow and the ones who get the most order flow are the ones um, who can maintain or execute with better prices for their clients. So if you're working at say night securities and in the old days, night had 70 or 80% of all the order flow in stocks under 10 or $20, um, you know, they dominated the market. So if you, if you had a chair at night, uh, you know, you saw order flow from more brokerage houses and institutions than someone who worked at a small market maker, market making firm in, um, Boca Raton, uh, that was more a specialist. So there are, that, that does exist. And, uh, but there are also different types of market makers. Um, you know, there are ones who like Knight or Citadel Securities or the big firms that get all the order flow. Uh, you know, most of the larger clients will trade through them because that's where the liquidity is. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, shout out to uh, Lee D uh, on YouTube for the questions. Good questions, Lee. We appreciate it. And our last question, I just remembered, you know, I forgot to write it down, but I remember Pyro Davis asked us. Or ask me this in uh, the micro in our micro e mini education room. Uh, Davis asked um, how long it takes me to write the intros. Um, so Davis, um, I mean, I don't know. It depends. I mean, sometimes I'm just like right on the ball. Like it doesn't take me no time at all. Like everything's just flowing. And then there's other times where I'm like kind of struggling to like. I, I imagine it's kind of like a writer's block, right? Like like a. You know, I imagine sometimes you're just flowing, you know, I mean, I guess, I guess you're writing a book, JJ, so you could know, like sometimes everything's just flowing. Other times you, f- you kind of feel a block. So I don't know. I guess it's different every time. That's true. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. Shout out to, uh, Pyro Davis, uh, over in our micro E mini education room. Um, and so, yeah, with that said, uh, that wraps up today's pod. Uh, you know, me and JJ would really appreciate it if you guys could rate and review it on iTunes or whatever other podcasts. Uh, platform that you're listening to this on. If you're listening to this on YouTube, uh, same thing, like it, you know, all that good business. Um, Also, if you guys would like to join us uh, trading during the day, if you guys want to trade, 
we're at the micro e mini futures or if you want to learn pardon because i already know jj is going to come in um <laughs> you want to learn we're at micro e futures.com uh our man here jj head educator get inside his mind see how he sees the market learn market profile uh, a lot of fun i think we got a great community over there i really enjoy the people there um yeah so with that being said jj any parting thoughts Oh, let's see. Uh, with these uh, crazy markets and the news-driven sort of events that are coming out, just everybody be be safe. You know, use those stops. Um, you know, uh, yeah. You use know, those I, I, I'm always. I, you know, what happened on Friday was you know a a great example of why we should use stops. And uh, don't take anything for granted in this market, guys, because this is, uh, you know. Uh, they have a saying in Asia, may you live in interesting times. And boy, are we ever because uh, things are starting to get a little, you know, they're starting to get a little overcooked and um, you know, let, let's see what happens. I can't foretell the future, but you know, for all the new traders out there, just, just, you know, be careful and uh, do your research and, and don't, don't push it in markets like this, you know, mm-hmm. uh, wait for the, uh, wait for the more obvious trades and, uh, you know, I, I, I'm just, I, I always like to err on the side of caution and I always sound like a nervous old guy, but, uh, I guess cause it's, it's because I've had so many scars, but just everybody just be careful out there. Mm-hmm. Stay safe guys. And with that said, that's going to wrap up today's podcast for the gorilla of house street. I'm Paulie Walnuts. Stay safe out there guys. Have a good night.